Hi everyone, Francisco here. Just before we get started, I wanted to share something I'm really excited about. I recently launched the Story Powers Bootcamp, a course that teaches you everything you need to know about how to find, craft, and tell stories that work. But it's not just an online course, because you get personalized feedback from me for all the practical activities and three hours of live coaching to work through any challenges or focus on specific projects. So it's like if you bought a cookbook, but the chef came along with it. So go to storypowers.com and click on course. All the information you need will be there. So please check it out. And if you love the show and would like to support us, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash storypowers. I drink about five coffees a day, so any support would be much appreciated. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Story Powers Podcast, the show about the power of stories, the people who tell them, and why you should be doing it too. I'm your host, keynote speaker and storytelling coach, Francisco Mafus. My guest today is Sage Turtle. Sage is a professional storyteller for hire, with over 15 years of teaching and performing before audiences of all sizes. She has won the Moth Story Slam multiple times and the Grand Slam once. She has also appeared on the PBS show Stories from the Stage and been featured on NPR, CBC Radio and many more. Sage comes across as the nicest person, but I also know that she hates hockey. She thinks children's folk tales are boring. In her storytelling workshops, sometimes she kills kittens. So this episode should definitely be interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, Sage Turtle. Sage, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you just going to let the, the killing kittens bit hang? <laughs> I think maybe we, we need to tackle that one. I think that there's a, a, a tendency with people when they're telling true stories to feel like every single moment is precious. And I was teaching at Seneca College and people were really struggling with how do I know what to cut out? So I ordered these little tiny kittens uh, who are crazy adorable uh, off of Etsy. And I gave out six of them. And then I had those six people tell the story of Little Red Riding Hood. And at the end of it, I asked the other people in the class, which kitten do we have to send to the farm? And they really hated doing it, even though it was just little teeny, you know, stuffed kittens. <laughs> But it certainly stuck in their heads as, right, sometimes you just have to cut it out and understand that unless it's adding to the climax, unless it's adding to the end, it is not relevant. And especially with oral storytelling, that's so important for people to understand that you have maybe seven minutes and you are competing with people's phones and people's phones are very attractive. They're meant to be addictive, right? That's how they're set up. So, so to cut it and cut it and cut it until you are giving the absolute essentials of the story, that's what's going to keep the audience excited by what you're saying. So this is your very graphic, creative, and traumatizing version of uh, Kill Your Darlings. Absolutely. And I will say, uh, children are, they love it. Adults have a much harder time with it, but children are like, great. Can we send them all to the farm? No, just the one. <laughs> yeah, so this is something I 
you know, I'm a, I'm a parent of young children. So my oldest is now five and the youngest is almost two. And, you know, you get to that point where you start thinking about life and death and how much do you explain to these children what, you know, what's really going on in the world. And they have, you know, they have older grandparents in the next 10 to 15 years, they're going to have to tackle, we're going to have to tackle that for sure. And, they, my, my oldest goes to a school that is incredibly advanced in many things. And they recently started, they talked about death. There was a whole thing that they talked about when she was four and something. And she got very used to the idea of, of you know, the things die. Although she keeps saying that someone is going to dive instead of die. <laughs> and we, we have a cat who who's... 11, I think. And she was saying the other day, oh, I would really like a dog. And I was like, oh, we can't have a dog, you know, because we live in an apartment. That's not easy. And also, you know, we have we have parsley, you know, while parsley is around, we can't have a, a dog. It's like, yes, but she's going to dive one day, right? When she dives, we'll get a dog. <laughs> and I was like, you don't seem particularly upset about this idea. <laughs> it's become very functional for her, I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> Right. So, so before we get into, into the weeds of, of what exactly makes a story better or more engaging or more compelling, I just want to take a few steps back. And, and the first one is, is just clarify something I heard you talk about in, in another podcast, I believe, where you were just trying to, to draw a very clear line between what is a story and what is it, what is just an anecdote? I don't know what isn't a story, but an anecdote versus an actual story. So how do you draw that distinction? So for me, stories must have a very strong balance. If you have a story that is almost entirely positive, awesome, that's stand-up comedy. If you have a story that's almost entirely negative, Great, you have Schindler's List. And while that is an acclaimed movie for a thousand good reasons, I have met one person in my entire life who has ever seen it twice. So what we want when we are telling a story is to have a beautiful balance of negative and positive. Anecdotes are light, they're light on purpose. And and Certainly, stand-up comics can keep an audience's attention for half an hour with a story about how they lost their keys. But for me, personally, that is not storytelling. That's making people laugh. That's light and fun. But nobody's ever going to think two years later, I was so emotionally affected by that story about the keys. They might think, I laughed a lot, but that's as as exciting as it's going to get. Meanwhile, I have people come up to me on the street. I happen to have blue hair, so I'm very recognizable. And they'll say to me, I saw you tell a story two years ago. I still think about it. And that's because I'm making sure that there's a very clear balance. There's a lot of negative. There's a lot of positive. And when you have that, you have something that feels like real life. When nothing good ever happens, it doesn't feel like real life. But when nothing bad ever happens, it also doesn't feel like real life. So for me, that's a clear distinction. And I personally don't have a whole lot of interest in any kind of story that doesn't achieve that balance. I think it's vital. I think given the pretty much the last two years we've had the 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 story where it's almost all negative doesn't feel like real life. <laughs> we might have to reevaluate that one slightly. 
Well, okay, you say that, but I know so many amazing stories of people who, when they suddenly had limits to what they could or couldn't do, found amazing passions, found really fantastic ways, have adapted to this very difficult time in in a thousand exciting ways. So I think even now, even now in the middle of a pandemic, even now as Omicron is looming, there's still so much positive. And to embrace that, to embrace the balance rather than to say, oh, well, we're in a pandemic, so everything is negative. But people have, you know, welcomed new babies into the world during this pandemic. Like there's some amazing joy that's that's happening uh that i personally would love to see get more attention i mean i've i've, I've had i've had my favorite child in this pandemic so <laughs> <laughs> alice if you listen into this i'm joking okay why would you be listening to this you're five years old but who knows right the kids get into their phones quickly these days yeah, no, I think it's interesting because I don't disagree with you, but I it's it's I think the first time I've seen someone make the distinction based on based on that criteria of you know the the balance of positive and negative and and, and emotional resonance because a lot of people tend to a lot of people tend to do, talk about elements. So you know if it needs to have learning tends to be one of the main things. Like if nothing is being if you can't learn anything from the story, if the characters haven't changed, so change and learning seems to be fairly common ones. And some people tend to think it's to do with, um, you know, a, a good one becomes a story. Like a weak one is just an anecdote. But I hadn't I hadn't seen that distinction being done on, on positives and, and, and negatives. I was just going to say that I absolutely agree on change. Change is vital. and But I think you can have change in an anecdote. So... The way I tend to see it is, I think the learning is the one that sticks with me usually. So, because I, I always go back to this evolutionary thing of stories became, uh, are something that stayed with us for all this time because they had a purpose. And, and the purpose was, it wasn't just learning. There was a whole bunch of, there was bonding and there was entertainment that was all part of it, the social aspects of it. But the learning of it, it was essentially what stories were for right in the beginning, or at least one of the things they were for. And to me, if someone says, they just tell me an amusing tale, but there's absolutely nothing to, to like, they're the same, you know, it's just, oh, I went to this bar, there are lots of crazy people, you wouldn't believe what happened there. To me, to me that's just an anecdote. Whereas they now see the world in a very different way because of what happened, then, then it, it has now become a story to me. Uh, there's a a sketch show. I will say it hasn't aged very well, but this specific sketch has. It's called the Catherine Tate Show, and one of her characters solely tells terrible stories. But what's very charming and and sweet about this sketch is that the one telling the terrible story is telling it as if it's Mission Impossible, and her husband is reacting as if it is the best story that he's ever heard in his life. And that's another teaching tool that I use. I, I actually show this sketch. You know, I say, okay, what is wrong with this story? Because nothing ever happens to this woman. And she adds a thousand uh 
irrelevant details and and the where she starts is never has it has anything to do with where she ends and uh so yes I, as i say the sketch show has not aged well but that specific sketch i still love yeah i have a i have a friend who i had on the podcast recently darren gibb and he's done something similar on linkedin he created this character called storytelling guru steve or story guru steve and and every i mean i i struggle to watch those videos that he puts out because they're so terrible it's like four minutes and you know the story is not going to go anywhere there's so much you want to see someone mango a story it's like you know at least for me like i i I get the point, but it, it is a very painful exercise. Well, I'm I'm sure with a with a five year old, I'm sure that you've heard those stories that you know you're you're in it. She's she's in a cave, and then t- forty seconds later, now it's in the sky, and there's a pony, and but there's a magical ring. You know, <laughs> five year olds are my favorite storytellers. Their stories are are not anything that I would personally tell, but to listen to them is amazing just the the massive leaps that our brains are taking and uh yeah i, I think they're wonderful I, i'd listen to those all day so i've heard you 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 had i think believe i heard you say that you had an issue with the idea of you know everyone has a story and i i have an issue with this this thing that people say all the time which is like you know we are born storytellers and just look at children children are stories all the time i have children the stories suck. They are awful. There is nothing you should like. If that evolution did not make those stories last, like that is not what what's the, what, why they stayed with us all this time. Because as you said, not only they leap from one thing to the other, it's the oh, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And it's like I so my again my poor kid. So my kid loves stories. She loves me to tell them to her. She loves me to read them, and she likes to tell them. And she. She, my, my parents live in Brazil. So she wanted to tell my mom, her grandma, a story. And I said, but at least it's, you know, you have to, you have to go to the shower soon. And, you know, it's, you, you've been on the phone with your grandma for a long time. Can you, can you make it a quick story? And she's like, I'm not sure. I, I'll, I'll start today. And if I don't finish, then I can tell the rest tomorrow. <laughs> amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I, my issue that I have with everybody has a story is, well, I, I think it's a big part of attempting to monetize storytelling rather than it being something beautiful that people share. My issue with it is, yeah, I do think everybody has a story. I think about 5% of those people are willing to tell that story. There's a thousand, there's so many reasons that people don't want to tell the important story, and that is totally cool. Tell the story that you're eager to tell, not the story that you feel somebody is, you know, digging out of you. But I think because there's this monetizing of storytelling, because people are watching television or looking at the internet and, and they're saying everybody has a story, then there is this like, oh, well, I lost my keys once, so I should get up on stage and tell that story. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I do believe that everybody has a story. I just think almost nobody is willing to tell that story. And, and then to what you said about being a born storyteller, I read a wonderful article a few years ago, which was, there is an idea that people are born with an innate talent. But very often, when you think of somebody who is 
born with an innate talent like Mozart, you have no idea what they went through in order to get to the point where it looked like they were. And with Mozart, his father, from the point that he could walk, was forcing him to practice piano for hours and hours and hours every day. So that by the time he was five, yeah, he was amazing because all he had done his whole life was piano. Uh, so so I believe that you can teach storytelling. I don't think it's an innate talent. I think that that it's something that you can absolutely learn. And if you're willing to immerse yourself in it and and uh, and listen to the stuff that's hard rather than the everybody has a story and the time you lost your keys is amazing. If you're willing to work really hard, you can you can be a preeminent storyteller. Absolutely, anybody can. Uh, but again, I don't think very many people are willing to put in the work that's required to to get to that point. The, the talent thing, I, I tend to find it kind of offensive because, so I, I've, I've been doing public speaking for a very long time. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, the, the best things I ever did were stories. And I, I had no idea I was doing any type of storytelling. But, you know, when I competed and I won things, it was always a story. And it took me a long time to figure out that that's what I was doing. But I know full well, and I have evidence, that the stories I told even two or three years ago were like I knew nothing compared to the way, to what I think I know now. You know, just, just yesterday, I wanted to post something on social media about uh, about my uncle, who's like this super <laughs> self-obsessed person, and, and he only talks about how great a cook he is. And it, like eating with him involves him sharing every single aspect of how great a cook he is, and is this the best risotto you ever had, and this type of thing. And I knew that I had written that story in the book I wrote about public speaking a couple of years back, and I said, you know, surely I can just like copy and paste, and, and that'll be that. It wasn't. I looked at it and I'm like, there is no dialogue in the story. Like, it's just me. Like, I'm, it's a decent story, but it's a lot of tell and no show. And it was way too long for social media as it was. And I'm like, I can do better than this. And I had the whole story, which was, I, I don't know, it would have been like a page long or half a page long. I had it in like 12 lines of dialogue. And I, I know I couldn't have done that two years ago, which is why I didn't. And it took to, to do that. It took, you know, 10 storytelling books. It took doing 90 episodes of this podcast. It took talking to a ton of people that that know this stuff. And then people go, oh, you're, you're, so, you're so talented. I'm like, no. Like, I mean, I'm not hopeless, but this is like a lot of effort has gone into this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tons and tons of hard work. That's where success comes from. Not from, you know, somebody being born from Zeus's forehead and becoming the goddess of wisdom. It's, it's sitting down and putting in the hard work and, and being willing to fail also. And like you, I look at things I did two years ago and, and I think, oh, I could have done much better if I knew what I know now. Of course, I didn't then. Uh, so I think to, to be willing to say, okay, this is my absolute best right now. And in two years, I'm probably going to think I could have done better. Um, but how exciting to be two years down the road and be like, wow, I've gotten so much better in those two years because I worked really hard in the interim. 
Talking about what you knew then and what you know now, my understanding is that you weren't born talented. And one of the first times you told the story, you you almost caused your uncle Doug to crash the car and kill the family because it was so boring. Uh, but then I also I, I have also heard you say, well, first of all, like, are we actually allowed to do that? Not crash the car and kill the family, but when someone's story is that boring. I don't think that usually, if, if I say to them, listen, I will kill myself if I have to listen to the end of this story. I don't think most people's response is going to be, you know what? I should work on this. Uh, this is going to become my goal for the rest of my life to become a much better storyteller and not uh, potentially put my, my family's life in danger. That feedback is not usually the way we want to give feedback to people who are, you know, murderously boring with the storytelling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and nobody nobody ever accused my family of, of being soft on each other. Uh, <laughs> For me, it was, well, to, to briefly tell the story, I was telling a story in the car and my uncle had been driving for a long time. And he said, if you, if you continue with this story, I will die of boredom and then we'll all die because I'm driving the car. And, and I had that moment of, you know, never telling a story again or doing what I did, which is to say, will you tell it? And he did. And it was amazing. And that it was like it was like a masterclass in storytelling in which I went, oh, like you did with your story, where you said, oh, it was a page, but I could tell it in twelve lines. He he told it briefly, but including all of the the best parts, the marrow of it. And I wasn't a great storyteller the next day, but I had that in my head for years of what do you need, what do you need, and to cut it down as I went so that when when the pandemic happened and stages disappeared, I did go to a lot of online storytelling shows, but was disappointed to find that it tended to be the same people who were there. So what I was hoping was to go from the Toronto audiences to an international audience, but it, it didn't happen that way. Uh, the same people who were interested in show A were interested in show B and C and D. And I didn't want to be part of a closed circle. Uh, I wanted to meet new people and, and find out new things. And so I said, all right, what, what can I do that doesn't involve online storytelling shows or stages in the middle of a pandemic? So I began to write and I've found a lot of success just in the past year, which has been very exciting. But certainly the fact that I can tell a story in 200 words that really affects other people is, is a definite outgrowth of knowing, okay, I have five minutes to get up on this stage and tell this story. What do I need? What's the marrow of it? Because cutting out what you don't need isn't about saying Little Red Riding Hood is a, you know, you don't get up on stage and say, well, there was a girl and then there was a wolf and then there wasn't the end, right? It's not that. It's it's turning a, a wedding cake into a perfect lemon tart. That perfect lemon tart has all the same ingredients, but it is very small and very tasty. And you wouldn't want to eat six of them. You would only want that one little lemon tart. So yeah, 
certainly while it was not the most pleasant experience I ever had, it has resonated throughout, you know, I guess that happened about 35 years ago. So a long, a long part of my life. So now that you, I think you mentioned this twice already, you talked about the marrow of the story. In your experience, correct me if I'm misquoting you, but I believe that you've You've summarized the most important things if you had to, you know, just I think it was four things. And I believe what you said was that the most important things for any story is that you need to tell it in order. You need to have emotional connection, risk and change. Tell it in order. I, I think it's straightforward enough. It's, like, it's not pulp fiction. You shouldn't be messing about the timelines when, when you tell a story. People are not always paying laser attention, even if your story is amazing. So if you're telling about your grandmother in 1943, and then you suddenly leap forward, and then you leap back, and they're confused, then that's it. They're lost for the whole rest of the story. And so for oral storytelling, yeah, tell it in order, please God. So I don't think this is necessarily an exception to tell it in order, but I've gotten used to sometimes doing something that I've I know Marsha Shandur, who I had on the podcast, who I believe you know. She she calls she says you're her mentor. I don't know if this is an official relationship, but she says you're her storytelling mentor. And what what she likes to do is say, you know, start start with action, and then if you have backtrack, just give the context or fill out the context slightly, but don't spend you know thirty seconds or a minute giving us context to then have some type of physical action or movement in the story. Uh, and I found that I can do that fairly easily, but I find that a lot of people get very confused when you tell them, like, can you just not start, you know, start on that action and then give us in two lines all the context we needed to know so that that action makes sense. I found that some people don't, they struggle with that. They, they, you know, they, their brain struggles to like. Well, can I just tell you what came before so you understand? It's like, yeah, you can, but it, it's not as exciting. Well, I, I think if you're reading a book or if you're watching Netflix, you're able to rewind, and you're not able to rewind with an oral story, and it is very easy to get distracted in the middle and to, you know, I've said three sentences and now the audience member is like, did I feed the cat? And now they've missed it. They've missed it and now they're lost and you cannot get that person back because they probably aren't going to put in the brain power required to figure out what the hell you did while they were thinking about their cats. So so yeah, I think I think we're a distractible society right now and it is vital to go just in order and and I think also there's a there's a tendency to try to be like a movie. And this is not what Marsha does at all. I think she's fantastic at what she does. So this is something completely different. To tell the end of the story and then to tell the beginning until you get to the end. I have never heard somebody get up on stage and do that and found it emotionally satisfying because 
I can predict the trajectory of the story. So nothing surprises me. So it doesn't matter if we're heading for now I'm holding on to the elevator of a of the elevator, the, the ladder of a helicopter and there's a shark underneath me because all I'm doing once they've rewound is figuring out how we're going to get there, which is not me enjoying the story. It's just me taking apart the radio and seeing how it works. Mostly when I'm not, mostly every single time that happens, I'm just bored and waiting for the story to be over. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a storytelling style that does not work. But as I say, nothing to do with what Marsha is advocating. Yeah, no, I, I think I think what she talks about, and it's something I, I tend to tell people to do too, is is you know just have just have some you know t time and place are very useful right at the beginning of the story because people can start that movie in their in their minds. But also, I, I like the idea of some some physical activity or some movement. So you know, I, I I've you know, I remember I was talking about a story about putting together an IKEA wardrobe, and, and it was something like you know I I I, I walked into I walked into the empty room of my new house and 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 I knew my wife and, and I knew my wife was just wrong because and then I and then I just said I had just come back from IKEA or whatever. So I, I just I just dropped that there and then immediately filled out what the context was instead of saying I had just moved to a new house. Yeah, or the one the one I like telling more is the one where I started saying the first time my wife, my girlfriend and I went skiing together, I found out she was cheating on me. And then like the whole story, like she wasn't cheating on me. The whole story is about how I'm building this. People are like, well, how, how is he going to, like, how are you the skiing going to turn into her cheating on you? It has nothing to do with her. Like she's not cheating on me. That's kind of the, the whole idea. I don't find the talent in order tends to be a mistake I come across often that people don't. What I do find is that they want to fill up, they give you so much context before anything hap actually happens that uh, it's like, okay, can you tell me that in two lines? Because if you can tell me that in two lines, we can get to the interesting bits. I find Little Red Riding Hood a fantastic story to use as an example. The crocodile and the monkey also works beautifully here. The crocodile and the monkey are friends. The crocodile comes every day to visit monkey. And then crocodile's mother decides that she wants to eat monkey's heart. Crocodile goes to monkey's island. They're halfway across to crocodile's house in the lake when crocodile admits what's happening. Monkey says, oh, shoot, I left my heart in the tree. So we got to go back. So the crocodile takes the monkey back. He goes up in the tree and crocodile has to go home with no monkey. And they are never friends again. So that story and, and most folk tales is a really fantastic example of start with what's important to the climax and the end. How did the monkey get to the island? Who cares? How come the crocodile doesn't have a dad? Who cares? How did crocodile and monkey meet? Who cares? None of that is important. The only thing that's important that we know is that crocodile and monkey are friends. That's it. So Little Red Riding Hood Similarly, what was her first day at school like? Who cares? Where's her dad? Who cares? Why does her grandma live by herself in the woods? Who cares? None of that is important. And I think 
we get so involved in, but the audience will be wondering, but they really won't. If you are fascinating up there on stage, you can be explaining that you're a mermaid alien from outer space and they are not gonna question a thing. They just wanna hear the story. So, so folktales are a wonderful place to look for how do you start and and how much information do you give? And it's almost always about half of of, uh, of what you'd like to include. Although it is fair to say that now that I, I read some of those to my children, they're horrible, 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 horrible things sometimes. <laughs> and, and I'm caught trying to explain some of them. And what a... I had this one where oh, it was uh, Rapunzel, and and I, I, maybe this is just a translation I have. I have a weird like children's version of it with some cartoon characters that are popular back in Brazil, and and essentially it's like the mother is pregnant. She wants the radishes that are being grown in the witch's garden. Then her husband steals the radishes. The witches the witch catches him and says, "Well." you know, I'm going to kill you unless you give me your firstborn. And and then she takes Proponzo. And I was trying to explain this to a three-year-old. And she was like, yeah, um, he, he made a very bad deal, a bad deal. She's like, oh, that sounds like a bad deal. Radishes for a, a baby. Yeah, I was like, I don't think it was a good deal. No. <laughs> it's like, how do you? How? It's like, did, when did they see the... When did they see the baby again? Not sure they saw the baby again. <laughs> it's like what? Yeah, yeah. That's that's the version I grew up with too. Uh, the whole thing is, is just horrible. Yeah, yeah. I was I was so one of one of my most exciting story moments growing up. I was 11 and I came across a book called Red as Blood by Tanith Lee. And it was a retelling of all of the fairy tales that I had grown up with. And and I read it and I went, oh, you could tell these in a different way. That That to me, I think was as formative as that moment with my uncle to just say these stories in which women are helpless, they're only important if they're beautiful, in which men have nothing to do except save beautiful women, in which men and women have no interest in each other's minds. You don't have to have any of that. You can take the amazing, awesome part of of somebody defeating a wolf. It doesn't have to be the lumberjack who comes in and defeats the wolf. Give Little Red Riding Hood a knife and then she saves her grandmother. I I noticed recently that you never see a woman who is unrelated to another woman saving her ever. I've seen it one time and I'm 49 years old. And, and the idea that you can take what's exquisite and exciting about fairy tales and tell it in a way that says to not just little girls, not just little boys, but all the kids, gender roles are nonsense. You don't need to be fulfilling any of this. Beauty doesn't matter. What matters is being smart. What matters is being kind. What matters is being funny. What matters is your behavior. All of it, bravery. Women are never brave in fairy tales. And and so to read Tameth Lee and say, oh, right, there are other ways of looking at this. I think I think the one that really got me was the frog prince. 
because I had read that story before without ever thinking about it. And Tanith Lee's version is she loses the ball in the well and the frog in the well is holding it and saying, yeah, I'll give it back to you, but you have to do all of these things for me. And she says, yes, I will do that. And then you really start to get it. Oh, this is horrific. He wants her to hold him in her lap all the time. He wants her to share his food or her food with him. He wants her to have him sleep in the bed. And then when he does turn into a prince, he's a super creepy evil prince who spirits her away in his super creepy evil carriage. Uh, so yeah, I think there's so many horrific messages that are that are being transmitted to, to girls and boys in fairy tales and to it just felt so exciting and it still does, you know, all these years later to say, right, this doesn't have to be the narrative that happens for kids. You can, you can do something new. You can do something different. Free to be you and me was another big, exciting moment for me in which they told the story of Atalanta. And at the end, in the story of Atalanta, she says, I won't marry anybody unless uh, he can beat me in a foot race. And then somebody does beat her in a foot race and she marries them. And that's the end of the story. Free to be you and me. They're in a foot race and they're racing and they're racing. They come in at exactly the same time. So here I am, five years old. I'm listening to the audio tape of, you know, the cassette tape at my little Montessori school. And I'm like, and then they'll get married. And the end of the story, and I'm going to get teary saying this because it's such a beautiful end, is, and maybe they got married and maybe they didn't. They went on adventures. They stayed friends. I was like, "Oh, that's a thing! <laughs> that's amazing!" So, so what you what you are saying is that folk tales and fairy tales do not need to be a dystopian patriarchy, and that Frozen, uh, in spite of what some people think, is not a feminist masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I couldn't point to to any Disney anything that was a feminist masterpiece. <laughs> But, it, but, it, but some, something that something that is, I mean, it's it sh this should have happened thirty years ago. But it's, I find it incredible how it's finally happening with, for example, superheroes. So you know, there was this big controversy back home in Brazil a few months ago because I think DC announced that the current Superman, which is like Superman's son, is going to be bisexual, and they had a, a they showed a, 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 a like a, some images of him kissing, you know, his. One his boyfriend or whatever, and 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 then some sports people like started having a you know nervous breakdown because you know Superman might like men or whatever, and, and, and that became a big thing, and and I think now that you have a whole bunch of other other superheroes coming out as queer and stuff like that, but at the same time you know how come Wonder Woman is not is not a lesbian. She's grown up in a, like all of the women, they chose not to have men around. That's it. They've lived for how long? And it's like no one, there's no, there's not one couple in that whole movie. Maybe she doesn't need to be, but like not one. Like, who are you fooling here? <sighs> it's, it's, an, it's an odd time to be alive because you have these wonderful moments where Superman is is has a boyfriend, but then you have this like 
backlash where I'm like, what year do they think it is? It's, you know, like, and also the people who are upset about it, like, what, why? Why? Like, Superman wants to have a boyfriend? Awesome. Superman wants to have a girlfriend? Awesome. Superman wants to have a non-binary, platonic, sometimes romantic partner? Awesome. Like, <laughs> great. Let's, you know. What I love is this. What I love is this. Well, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, he can fly around the world and turn back time. But you think him fencing a guy is a problem? <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is very, very funny. <laughs> where, where people draw the line of what's believable in a story is quite incredible. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, so, okay, so we had, we had one of the things was tell it in order. The other thing was change. We kind of talked a bit about that one. And then you had the other two points I think you had mentioned were having an emotional connection and risk. When you say risk, I'm going to take a, a, a guess here and, and say that you're not talking necessarily. You're not talking about danger the way most people would understand danger, right? It's not like it doesn't need to be an adventure where someone's, you know, where your uncle is going to kill the whole family because your stories are so boring. That's not the risk you are talking about, right? Yeah, that's not the risk I'm talking about. And one of my all-time favorite stories actually does it's a true story and and i won't retell it as it's not my story but i'll talk about it in a vague way the person who is telling the story their life is in real imminent danger because of a really scary political situation and the position that their family holds and that story has almost no action in it. It takes place entirely inside a six-year-old girl's ideas and opinions of what's going on around the, around her. And, and it is one of my all-time favorite stories that I've ever heard. There's another story about that has a woman who buys a lipstick and that is the only thing that happens and and it has risk it has change it has emotional connection i always cry when i hear this story because it is so good because it's talking about something bigger that is not a story about lipstick it's a story about immigration it's a story about uh being a refugee. It's a story about male-female relationships. It's a story about being a child and, and seeing your whole cultural landscape shift, right? That's what it's about, even though the only thing that happens is the lipstick. So yeah, when I say risk, it could be a story about a woman buying a lipstick, but there has to be something that that is at stake. What's at stake in that story about the lipstick is this woman's identity, this woman's progressing into a completely new life in a completely new country, this woman's marriage. Like there's so much that's at stake in this story that even though I've heard it a bunch of times, I am always on the edge of my seat. I know it's going to happen and it doesn't matter. It's such a good story. So, so yeah, I think I think risk can can be looked at as you know it's got to be about something bigger. If it's just about losing your keys, then it's a fun anecdote to tell your friends uh, around you know the table at a coffee shop. But but it's the bigger stories that belong on stage. It's the bigger stories that make you a storyteller. So the way I've 
I've described that just to get away from the language of stakes, which I think once you once you immerse yourself into storytelling, I think you automatically get right. The moment you say stakes, you don't need to say anything else. Does the story have stakes? No, it doesn't. I think to some people, they might struggle with what those stakes are. So I have described that and I said, there needs to be a problem that the characters care about. That's it. If they don't care about it, then you are not going to either. Uh, if, if you don't have that, then, then you you got nothing. And and I've, I've had people tell me like, oh, it's just like I'm trying to run a marathon and whatever. And I'm like, okay, I can see you struggling to run a marathon, but I don't understand why that matters. Like what happens if you don't run the marathon? Maybe maybe there was you were trying to help a charity and that is super important to you. Maybe it's just because you your whole self identity is based on that you are an athlete or whatever it might be. But why do you care about it other than well it sucks if I don't finish? Because if it sucks if I don't finish, that's not a story you need to be telling anybody, really. Yeah, yeah, I I'm with you. I you know the the thing with I've lost my keys. Okay, if there is a baby who is about to drink bleach in the house and you're outside and you've lost your keys. Now I care that you lost your keys. If there's a fire and you have to go in and put it out, you know, there has to be, as you say, a problem that you care about in a, in a deeper way. If your relationship is in the rocks and you're arriving at three o'clock in the morning drunk, hoping to sneak back in bed and pretend you've been there for a lot longer and you've lost your keys now all of a sudden that story has stakes and i i have clearly just come up with this scenario this is not something that's ever happened to me or would happen to me just to be completely clear here <laughs> okay fine so so I, I get risk now you have uh, i think the, the last one there was having an emotional connection and and that's so that's the thing where where the, the, there needs to be a connection there between those two things, right? Because what matters, the stakes that matter to the to the ca- character, might not necessarily generate an emotional connection in the audience. So, in your view, what what does generate that emotional connection? So, so I grew up in the states, and I only came to Canada in two thousand four. And though Canada and the U.S. have a lot in common. There are aspects of Canada that are much more like the UK than like America. And one of them is in how emotional people are willing to be. So I didn't just grow up in America. I grew up in California. So I am, you know, I I wear my heart on my sleeve and everybody always knows exactly how I feel at any given moment. So to move to a place where emotions were viewed as something that you didn't talk about, and then to have people come to me and say, how do I tell a story? That was the first thing I had to say was, we don't care about that time you were frustrated at the airport because you're your your flight was late. We don't care about that. And I think if you think about on Facebook, if somebody is complaining about their flight being late, you are way less likely to say, oh, tell me more than you are when somebody is like, I found a high-heeled shoe on my doorstep and it's not mine. Oh, now I'm interested. Tell me more about that. But I do not care about your flight being late or you whining about it. So so I, when, when I very first started out uh, teaching storytelling, I would say, all right, so let's make a list of emotions. And the Canadians would be like irritated, frustrated, bored. And I'm like, these are not emotions. <laughs> these are 
Facebook posts, I am scrolling past. Uh, so, uh, so for me, that's why the big emotional component has to be there because I think there is a, a general, and of course not everybody, but a, a general idea here in Canada that nobody cares about your emotions. So you better talk about how irritated or frustrated or bored you were. That way you're completely keeping yourself from being vulnerable. But if you want to involve the audience in your emotional moment, then you have to be vulnerable. I don't mean that you need to be telling a story you're not ready to tell. You always have to have the emotional distance to tell the story that you're on stage telling. But when I perform my half-hour show that ends with me on the subway and a complete stranger telling me that I am the ugliest person he's ever seen in his life. And the best I could hope for is that somebody might find me acceptable someday. When I tell that story, I am emotionally ready to tell it, but I'm also vulnerable in telling it. And because of that, Whenever I tell that story on stage, I have tens of hundreds of people coming up to me saying that was amazing and we loved it. And that was because I was willing to get up in front of people and say, this awful thing happened to me and it was devastating. So emotional connection means being vulnerable on stage when you are emotionally ready to be vulnerable, but never before, never, ever before. There was a shorthand to that idea that I picked up from, I think it was from Simon Raybould, who is another, he's a speaking coach and a presentations coach. And I had him on the podcast a while back and, and he calls that scars, not scabs. Mm, absolutely. Many, many years ago, I, I saw a young woman tell a story. She had seven minutes to tell the story. 17 minutes in, she had the mic. It had a very long cord, and she was wandering around the audience asking various men, um, and then, like, my boyfriend, like, he broke up with me, and now he won't call me, but, like, should, um, should I call him? You're a guy. Should I call him? And she put the mic to the guy. Like, it, she was sobbing, and everybody was just, like, please, God, let this end. <laughs> and that was a person who was not ready to tell that story. Absolutely not in any way. Yeah, I... <laughs> The vulnerability thing, it's some, in some ways, it feels like it's been done to death in the last few years. But at the same time, a lot of people just don't get what it means. And I remember that when I when I was writing that part of my of my book, and well, there was a big part of the book. The book was called is called Bear: A Guide to Brutally Honest Public Speaking, and has like the cover is like this Clark Kent type of character opening his shirt, and you can just see like the skeleton and a beating heart in there. And I I, I came across I came across no I I came up with this idea of of how um wolves and i think a lot of other wild animals solve um you know well, the reason why they don't kill each other all the time is is because is because of vulnerability is because you know once once two wolves are are growling at each other um if, if none of them backs backs off then then the only way that's going to be resolved is through violence but the moment one of them shows themselves to be vulnerable, you know, they 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 show their their throat and say, "Fine, if you want to, if you want to tear me to pieces, you off you go." That's when it stops, and they go, "Okay, fine, 
We, we don't think you're a threat anymore. You've made yourself vulnerable. You're not a threat anymore. You can now join the pack. Now we can look after each other because you stopped being a threat, because you stopped being aggressive. And, and this is what I think people don't necessarily get that this is just like, see, I'm messed up too. And you're like, oh, welcome, welcome. <laughs> We're all messed up. Come over here. Well, let me tell you about the, my problems. Whereas the, the opposite, which is the which is the super competent, super successful, I've got it all figured out. It's just like, who is this alien? Right? Like, I, I, I don't know who you are. Which, which is one reason why Superman is such a horrible character, is that there's no emotional vulnerability to him. And when he is vulnerable, it's not even him. It's like an alter ego of, of Superman. So it is just, there's no way you can possibly relate to him as a person. And even Clark Kent becomes a crappy way to do that because you know that really he's not like that. This is like the the American teenage movie where the girl that is meant to be ugly you know she's a knockout. You know that it's just makeup and bad hair. And you know that if they just kind of, you know, do hair and makeup on her, she is now striking. That, like, that doesn't work. Like, there is no, like, you can't relate to that if, if that's something that you're concerned about yourself. And and I, I don't, I just don't think people get, and, I, you know, I do a lot of, I, I do work with a lot of business people and, and they really struggle with the whole vulnerability thing because like, well, should I be telling about my, my daddy issues? I was like, well, you can, and that can actually work really well. But sometimes it's just something as simple as you're going to talk about something where you were successful at the end, you know, a project that ended up being well, but you share all the doubt and you share all the wrong turns and you share how it definitely looked hopeless at some point in there. And then you found the solution. My partner, when he was just starting out, he was 20 years old and he was really struggling at work. And his boss took him aside and said, hey, let me tell you a story. I used to be a roadie for a, a rock band and they weren't super popular. So it was like, me, I was the roadie. And one night it was three o'clock in the morning and, and they finished. And so now it's up to me to put everything away. And I got up on the stage and I just felt like crying. It was, you know, it was a thousand cables and, and all all the speakers. And, and I thought this will take forever and I just want to go to sleep. But what could I do? I took the very first chord and I began to wind it. And I did that until everything was put away. So when you're feeling overwhelmed with that moment of trying to, it looks like it's just a tangled mess, pick up a chord and start winding and eventually you will get to the end. And I think that's a great example of, of in a business setting, somebody being willing to be vulnerable and and you know that was that was 30 years ago my my partner still tells that story as you know here's here's how how you can face a difficult situation so so yeah i, I think it is possible to be vulnerable in a business setting and and not just be a success but to really inspire other people and and even if you are going to to talk about your your daddy issues now you know that that can go horribly wrong there's this it's not something you would automatically suggest people do but one exercise that that i do when i'm when i'm giving training on on say presentation skills is i will have people do what what what's often called like a pathos speech so something about like your biggest disappointment or your biggest fear or whatever and with almost no exception 
I, I because people are like they hate doing it. They don't want to do it. They 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 resist the idea, but know that because everybody else is going to do, it, they they go along and do it. And then you ask people afterwards, just like how do you like how do you feel about the the person that has just spoken? And they say, oh, I just feel like I know them so much more. Like I respect them more. I I feel so much closer to them. And it's sometimes it's the most awful possible story that you would never want to tell anyone. And then they're like, oh, and I I never like I, I had such a different idea of who you were as a person. And now because you just told me this thing, now I feel like I really know you. So yeah, <laughs> it's it does work. I mean, Brené Brown does know what she's talking about. <laughs> I have I have sort of one last question to you, which is more of a style, uh, stylistic question. And I, I have described this to people before that the way they should tell stories is as if they are in a bar, not as if they were on Broadway. And I've heard, I think it was Matthew Dix that called this the dinner test. So, you know, if you wouldn't tell it in those words with that type of tone of voice or gestures or whatever, over dinner to a friend then don't do it on stage. Now, now I've heard some of you, I've read some of your stories, I've heard you tell maybe three or four different stories live. And one thing that struck me about your style is that by that definition, I'm not sure, well, I don't know the conversations you have with your friends. I'm not sure that a lot of your stories would pass the dinner test because I think the language at times is a lot more beautiful. There's a lot more metaphors didn't seem unnatural in any way to me, but it was definitely not something I can imagine you just naturally sharing it in that that exact way. So w- what are your thoughts? I mean, based on what you do in your own performances, I get a feel for that. But do you think that the the language you use when you tell a story should be as everyday for most people, not necessarily for you, but should be as everyday as possible, or you you don't have any issue with people being more literary with the way they tell stories? I think that there are people who write their story as if it's a short story, then memorize it, then get up on stage and say the thing that they've memorized. It doesn't feel good to the audience because although they are not reading it off a piece of paper, they might as well be. My favorite story in connection with that is a performance I wasn't at but heard about. Years and years ago, a woman was reciting a 20-page poem. She got 10 minutes in. She couldn't remember the next line. She went back and started at the beginning and then told the entire poem and did it correctly the second time. But that meant that the audience was sitting there for 40 minutes instead of 30 minutes because they had to hear the first 10 minutes twice. So that is such a perfect example to me of why you should never memorize your story ever, ever, ever. However, I bridle when I hear people say, you must speak this way or fuck off. Well, who made you the king of storytelling or the queen of storytelling? If you want to speak in a more lyrical way, then do it. If you want to speak in a more everyday way, then do that. All I ask people to do is not to memorize, because I think the way that you feel most comfortable telling a story is the way that's going to engage the audience the best. So if you feel comfortable being more lyrical, then do that. If you feel comfortable being more straightforward, then do that. But but yeah, I think I, I do bridle with that. Do it 
it, do it this way or you're not worthy of being on stage. That that I, I doesn't sit well with me. You might rethink that uh, that very reasonable and empathic approach to people's styles when you hear the the hundred and fiftieth business person go up there and say, and so. We struggled with our competitiveness against our competitors. And, and, <laughs> and I'm having to say to them, first, what the hell are you talking about? Two, would you possibly ever talk that way if you were explaining this to a mate over dinner or at a bar or to one of your relatives? Like you wouldn't use nine out of the 10 words you just use. So can you maybe try that? And then you sound like a human. I've, I've often said, can you do this again, but, but like a human being now? Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I think that there is a tendency to think of what's on paper and what is being said as identical. And although, as you say, my personal style is not dinner conversation, when I adapt a story that I've told on stage for paper, they are very, very different, though they're telling exactly the same story. So uh, so I do think it's important to recognize that what will keep an audience's attention in a theater will not keep an audience's attention on paper and vice versa. They are such different beasts and they have so many different ways to make each one strong, but but they do not translate. They don't translate directly. There must be changes made for for either medium. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And uh, and and listen, I think when people are good, then there is there's no shortage of styles that that work and work very well. And people have their personal preferences, but I do tend to find, but, but the problem I'm fighting against is not a problem you are mentioning. And I'm not fully buying into the whole, you know, don't write it down and then try to memorize it because it sounds like you've memorized a written text and that never comes across as natural. If you say it 10 times and once you've now kind of got it in your head, you want to write it down because for, for reference, sure, no problem. But you, you're writing down a, an oral story. You're not trying to tell a written story. They're very different things. To me, it's just the easiest way for me to cut the, the lingo or the corporate speak out of someone's storytelling or speaking is to just say, how, how would you tell it to a mate? Because if you wouldn't tell it this way, then there, we have a bit of a problem here. And I'm not saying don't use, you know, if there's a short, like one word that, that like if you want to say stakes and have explaining what stakes are over you know, 30 seconds or a minute, just say stakes because everybody will understand what you're talking about. But don't say, don't say leverage your influence and 10x your impact when you're just trying to say you tell about the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if people people want to want to find out more of your stuff, where what's the best place for them to go? The best place is tyrtle.com. I run a series of low-cost writing workshops. 100% of the fee goes to the facilitator. They are 10 pounds, 17 Canadian dollars, about 14 American dollars. And they take place across a wide variety of time zones, so they accommodate a lot of people. We're also 
we, I say we, it's really just me. I'm also beginning a free writing group that's going to meet weekly. There are two versions, one for uh, one sort of group of time zones and, and another for another group of time zones, which are open to everybody. And as I say, free. So, so I would be wonderful to see you at any of those workshops or at the writing group, which begins in late January. I'll, I'll put that on the show notes, but for anyone who's too lazy to check them, her website is, is turtle.com and turtle is spelled T-Y-R-T-L-E. So the same as the animal, but with a Y instead of you. Sage, thank you very much for your time. This was, this was great fun. Thank you so much. I had a ball. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Take care of yourselves. And until next time. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. It's very easy. You open the app and find this show. Then scroll down a little, and when you see the stars, tap. I'd really appreciate it, and it does help other people find us. And if you'd like to get in touch or find out more about what I do, reach out to me on LinkedIn or visit my website, storypowers.com.